Great, do grab a seat. Uh, And as you sit down, do make sure you've got a Bible in front of you so you can see 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, Wave your hand if you'd like a Bible, someone will bring one to you. Um, And we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, it's on page 1150 if you have a church Bible, one of these blue church Bibles, 1150. One Corinthians chapter nine. Paul writes, "Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defence to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink?" Then we have the right to take a believing wife along with us and do as the other apostles do and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right not to work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. It is about oxen that God is concerned. Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us. Because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights. I'm not writing this in in the hope that you will do such things for me. For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my right as a preacher of the gospel. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. 
Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are not a silent God. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us. And Father, we thank you as well that you don't leave us guessing about what it means to live for you. Father, thank you that you clearly speak to us in your word and by your spirit to show us what it means to live for the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would open our eyes to your truth this evening in his name. Amen. Well, I want to begin our time this evening with a question, and that is, who do you follow? Who do you follow? It's an important question for us to think about because everybody follows somebody. Everyone follows someone. I was looking on the internet this week. Katy Perry has the highest number of Twitter followers with 107 million people following her on Twitter. Cristiano Ronaldo has the highest Instagram following of 160 million people. Well over twice the population of the UK follow this guy taking photos of himself. But you don't need to be on social media to be a follower, do you? When you stop and think about it, we all follow someone. Whoever we are, wherever we're from, we're all inspired by, motivated by, driven by someone. It might be someone that you know very well, a friend, a relative, a teacher. It might be someone that you've never met, someone online. It might be yourself. But everybody follows somebody. And so ask yourself this evening, who do I follow? Who influences what I think, what I feel, what I do? Who has an impact on the way that I live? Who do I follow? For the Corinthians, the answer to that question was, whoever looks and sounds the most impressive. If you can remember back to last term before Easter, we saw that the Corinthians tended to be impressed by flashy, fancy preachers. People with big egos and big bank accounts to match. And these flashy preachers, they they gathered followers. People who wanted to be like them. People who wanted to follow their example. And so there were these flashy preachers in Corinth. And then there was Paul. Little old Paul, uh, with his weak-looking ministry and his foolish-sounding message. No one in Corinth was that interested in Paul anymore. Uh, No one really wanted to follow him. And so as Paul writes this letter, this letter of 1 Corinthians, he's trying to persuade the Corinthians, uh, trying to show them that, that actually he is the one they should be following. Not because he wants a big fan base for himself, not because he's jealous of the flashy preachers, but because he's convinced that his message, his ministry, his whole life 
is in line with the gospel. As he says in 11 verse 1, the Corinthians should follow him as he follows Christ. And we saw how that worked last week, didn't we? In chapter 8, Paul called the Corinthians, and he called us, to follow his example in giving up his rights for the sake of other believers. In contrast to some in the church who were using their rights for themselves, Paul said that a genuine Christ-centered Christian will give up their rights if they think they're causing harm to another believer. And this week we see that this theme continues into chapter 9. In chapter 9, Paul continues to point to himself as an example of Christ-centered freedom. And the big thing that he wants us to see is that we should be willing to give up our rights so that others can hear the gospel. We should be willing to give up our freedoms, our rights, so that others can hear the gospel. So we're to follow Paul's example, and first we see his example in sacrifice. His example in sacrifice. As I said, the Corinthians, they were impressed by these flashy preachers, the ones with big Twitter followings and best-selling books. Those were the guys they followed. And that meant that some in Corinth weren't convinced that Paul was the real deal. As I say, his ministry looked weak. His message seemed foolish. He, he wasn't even paid a proper salary. He had to do some sort of menial job with his hands, a tent making, just to get by. And so to the Corinthians, Paul was not very impressive, not worth following. Which is why at the start of chapter 9, he again defends his apostleship. Just look at verse 1. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Paul reiterates he is a genuine apostle of Jesus Christ. Someone who has witnessed the risen Jesus, spoken with him, been commissioned by him. And he says the fact that there is a church in Corinth is proof of that fact. Paul is the real deal. He's a genuine apostle. And he says that means he has the right to financial support. We're not going to look at verses 4 to 14 in lots of detail this evening, but, but in essence, Paul there is defending his right to be paid for his labor as a minister of the gospel. If you look there, you see that he appeals to human reason using examples from soldiers and vineyards. He appeals to the Old Testament law to the Corinthians themselves, even to the Lord Jesus, in support of his right to be paid for his work. But then, having spent those verses emphasizing that point, ten verses making it clear he has the right to be paid, he writes in the second half of verse 12, but we do not use this right. And again in verse 15, I have not used any of these rights. Paul might have the right to payment, but that doesn't mean he uses that right. In fact, we see that he does the opposite. He sacrifices his right. Why? Look at verse 12 again. But we do not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. 
You see, the flashy celebrity preachers in Corinth, they were ranked not just on their speaking ability, but also on how much they could charge for their services. The bigger the fee, the better the preacher. That was what was going on in Corinth. And so Paul was worried. Worried that people might start to think that he was just like them. That he was motivated out of a desire to make money rather than simply to live and preach the gospel. That's his point, I think, in the next few verses. He wants people to see that the gospel comes free of charge. The logic in these verses, verses 15 to 18, is quite hard to follow through, but just as we read through, just stick with me, and hopefully we'll see what Paul is saying by the end. So verse 15, look there. He says, I've not used any of these rights, the rights to payment, and I'm not writing in the hope that you'll suddenly start paying me. This isn't a thinly veiled begging letter. I don't use these rights, but instead I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. What is his boast? Well, I think it's the boast of him preaching the gospel without charge. Because in verse 16 he says, When I preach the gospel, I can't boast, for I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I don't preach. Paul was compelled to preach the gospel because Jesus had commanded him to do so. On the Damascus Road, the risen Jesus had commanded Paul to preach the gospel. He didn't really have a choice in the matter. And so verse 17, he says, If I preach voluntarily, then I have a reward. If not voluntarily, then I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. He says there is no reward, no payment, because I'm compelled to preach. I don't do it voluntarily in that sense. I'm simply carrying out my duty. Yet in verse 18, he says, there is a reward. The reward of offering the gospel to people free of charge. And that is Paul's boast. That is the thing that he doesn't want taken from him. The chance to follow in the footsteps of his saviour. The chance to sacrifice his rights for the sake of others, for the sake of the gospel. You see, Paul is clear. He's, he's not against gospel ministers being paid. But in a context where people are linking money with successful ministry, well, Paul says he'll give up his right to payment so that people can see the gospel comes for free. And so do you see how radically Christ-centered Paul is again here? He wants his ministry, his life, to follow the pattern that Christ has set for him. The pattern of thinking more about what he can give than what he can get. The pattern of willingly sacrificing his rights for the good of others. And so the question is, what about us? Is that a pattern, an example that we follow? A difficult question that I've been asking myself this week is this. When was the last time I actively gave something up for the sake of the gospel? When did I last go without something that was perfectly right and reasonable for me to have in order that others might have the chance to hear about Jesus? 
It's a challenging question, isn't it? And that will look different for each one of us here this evening, depending on our situation. For some, it might mean giving up your right to a relaxing Friday evening at the end of a busy week so that you can help out in the youth work. For others, it might mean slowing down your career progression so that you have time to lead a life group or be more involved in some of the aspect of church life. It might mean giving up a week of your annual leave so that you can help out with the kids' club over the summer. It might mean inviting your awkward neighbours around for dinner as well as your friends from church. It might mean selling up and moving country to an area where people don't have access to the gospel. There are countless ways, there are countless opportunities for us to follow Paul's example, to follow Christ's example in giving up the things that we feel we are owed simply so that others can know more about Jesus. And so that's the first question. Will we follow Paul's example in sacrifice? Next, we see that Paul wants us to follow his example in slavery. Uh, Verse 19, just look there. Verse 19, Paul states that he is a free man, uh, free in Christ. Uh, But again, that doesn't mean he insists on using that freedom for himself. Instead, he gives up his freedom. He becomes or he makes himself a slave, a slave to others. He deliberately, willingly views his freedom not as something for himself, but as an opportunity to serve others. Why does he do that? End of verse 18. In order to win as many as possible. Once again, it's the gospel that motivates Paul. It's the gospel that means he will sacrifice his right to payment. And it's the gospel that means he will be a slave to others. What does that slavery look like for him? Well, in verse 20, it says it looks like being prepared to remove any cultural or social barrier that might prevent people from hearing about Christ. And so for Paul, that means when speaking with the Jews, he'll behave like a Jew. He'll say and do things deliberately in a certain way so as not to exclude them or alienate them in any way. But then when he's speaking with the Gentiles, well, he'll change his behavior, change what he does to to make it as easy as possible for those people to hear the gospel. And that might have meant choosing to eat or not eat certain foods. It might mean wearing certain clothes. It might mean taking part in certain customs. Whatever it involved for Paul, the point is there at the end of verse 22. He says, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. Uh, Of course, having said that, there are limits to what he will do, aren't there? He won't compromise the the gospel message. He he was clear about that in chapter 2. He resolved to preach nothing but Christ crucified. So he won't change the message. And he won't deliberately act against God's commands either. End of verse 21, he says he is still under Christ's law. And so there are limits 
But within those limits, Paul is prepared to do everything, anything possible, so that he can reach people with the gospel. Verse 23, he says, I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I might share in its blessings. And so just as in verses 15 to 18, Paul wants his life to match his message. He wants to live in such a way that his life shares in the very nature of the gospel. That is to use his freedom to serve all types of people, whether Jew or Gentile, whether weak or strong, whether rich or poor. He would give up his freedom, make himself a slave for their sake. Because that is what Jesus did, isn't it? Jesus is the saviour who did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus is the saviour who came to give his life, give his freedom, give up his rights as a ransom for many. Paul knew that, and so he put it into practice. He followed Christ's example, and he lived out the gospel by serving others rather than himself. And so again, we need to ask ourselves that question. Is that an example that we are following? Is your life a visible demonstration of the gospel you believe? Are you willing to become a slave, willing to do things that you wouldn't normally do in order to win people for Christ? What might that look like for us? It might mean going along to the nursing home, and spending a few hours chatting about things that you really wouldn't normally talk about so that you can introduce someone there to Jesus. It might mean deliberately changing the topic of conversation when you invite your unbelieving friends out with your friends from church. Realising that uh, conversations about the latest theological controversy or the ins and outs of the coffee rotor will immediately alienate someone who isn't a Christian. We could think of countless examples, but the challenge is to be proactive in removing any barriers to people hearing the good news about Jesus. And thinking this way, thinking in these terms, it'll affect the way we view our evangelism. It'll affect the way that we think about that great commission we've been thinking so much about recently. The commission that Jesus gives to go and make disciples of all nations. One writer puts it this way. They say, as society becomes increasingly secular, it is tempting for us believers to retreat into a Christian ghetto or subculture, rather like a rabbit warren beneath where most people live. We emerge into the real world when we have to, to go to work or or to do the shopping. But we ensure that almost all our social interaction takes place where we feel safe, with other believers. From time to time, our church organizes an evangelistic event and we go out and try to persuade people to come. Unsurprisingly, most say no. They hardly know us. And when they do peer down the warren below, or they're put off by the strange jargon we use, the clothes we wear, the songs we sing. Our world is alien to them. And they're sure that they would feel out of place 
if they entered it. So we retreat back to our friends. We report that evangelism is very difficult these days. And then we return with relief to our comfortable life with our fellow Christians. It's a caricature, of course. But you can see the point, can't you? As Christians, we are free to spend our time with whoever we want, with other Christians. That's a good and right thing to do. But if that's all we do, if we never show any interest in our colleagues or our neighbours, well, then we can hardly expect them to show any interest in Christ. And it's not just a challenge for us as individuals. It's also a challenge for us as as a church. The writer goes on to say, Jesus told his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. But we have turned the go into come. Instead of making an effort to reach people where they are, all too often we do little more than put a notice on our church door with the times of our meetings and wait for people to come. If they do turn up, we expect them to take us as they find us. Rather than adapting as far as possible to make it easy for them to hear the gospel. We need to recognize that if we're going to reach people, we must go to them rather than expecting them to come to us. And we thought about this last Sunday morning, didn't we? Jesus, the one with all authority, says, go, go. And so as a church, we need to think about the best ways that we can do that in our context here in Chessington, as individuals, as families, as small groups, as a whole church. We have to keep thinking about ways we can build bridges into our community. Keep thinking about ways that we can love and serve the people that live around here. We need to think specifically about the most appropriate and effective ways we can share the gospel with people in Chessington. Paul says we're not free to change the message. That's the message of Christ crucified. We're not free to disobey God. We're still under Christ's law. But that leaves a huge area of freedom in which we shouldn't be driven by our rights but by our, or by our desire for comfort or security or a nice time at church but driven by a desire for all people to hear about the Lord Jesus. So Paul says, follow my example. Follow my example. Make yourself a slave for the sake of the gospel. And then finally, and more briefly, Paul wants us to follow his example in self-discipline. In self-discipline. You see, if we're going to take Paul seriously... If, we, if we're generally going to follow this example of sacrifice and slavery, well, then he says it's going to be hard work. He makes that point using imagery from the athletics world. Verse 24, just look there with me. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Paul says, if, you, if you're going to embrace this life of sacrifice and slavery, it will require the discipline of an athlete. It will require self-discipline. That's because the temptation will be, 
always be to do the opposite, to live for self, to live for the now, to stay in our comfort zone. But Paul says, no, 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 keep, keep your eye on the prize and keep going. Verse 25, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Some days, athletes don't feel like training. And some days, we won't feel like making sacrifices or serving other people. But if the athlete keeps going, if they persevere, well, then it'll all be worth it in the end. When they stand on that podium and they receive the prize... And Paul says the same is true for us. Sacrifice and slavery is not easy, but it is worth it. Paul encourages believers there is a reward. And he also warns us at the end of verse 27. He says it's possible to be disqualified. Remember what we saw last week. Paul said that love is the mark of the true believer. Love for God and love for others. And we've seen now, haven't we, over these two chapters, that that love will show itself in sacrificial service of others, for both believers and unbelievers alike. In other words, this life, this example that Paul sets, the life of sacrifice and service, it's not for the super keen Christian. It's for everyone. It's the mark of a genuine Christ-centered believer. And so Paul warns that if a person doesn't love like this, if a person lives consistently self-centeredly rather than Christ-centeredly, if their freedoms and rights are always all about themselves and never about anyone else or the gospel, well, then one day they'll be exposed. It'll be clear that they never had true faith in Christ. And so they'll be disqualified from the prize. The repeated theme of the Bible is that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Nothing more, nothing less. But also that true faith shows itself in action. In particular, it will show itself in the way we behave towards others. The way that we love them. And so it's a challenging note for us to end on, isn't it? One, as I say, that has caused me to question myself over the last week and it should do the same for all of us it causes us to examine our hearts and ask ourselves that question we thought about at the start who do I follow who sets the pattern the shape of my life let's pray that we would be people who follow Paul's example in being Christ-centred Follow Paul's example in fixing our eyes on the Lord Jesus. Willing to give up our rights, our freedoms. Willing to do anything and everything so that as many people as possible can hear the good news about our Saviour. About the one who has given up everything for us. Let's pray we would follow Paul's example in being Christ-centred with our freedoms. Let's pray.
Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us over the last few weeks. Father, thank you that as we consider Matthew 28 and that great commission of the Lord Jesus, as we consider Jonah this morning, and as now as we come to Paul's example in Corinthians, Father, we are uh, so aware that so often the biggest barrier to people coming to faith in Christ is our own reluctance, our own unwillingness to do these things. Thank you, Father, that Jesus gave up his life so that we could be forgiven for that reluctance, so that we could be forgiven for our unwillingness to live for him rather than ourselves. And so we thank you for your grace to us in the Lord Jesus. But we do pray, Father, that as we marvel at that grace, we would be compelled to go out and make Jesus known, that we would do anything and everything so that our friends, so that our families, so that people in Chessington and further afield would know about the one who died to save them. Father, please help us in this, we pray. Amen. We're going to sing again now in response to what we've heard from God's word. So once the band are ready and start, let's stand together and sing.